This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, my guest is Danielle Alisi. She is assistant professor at Millican College, and she wrote a great essay in a book titled Game of Thrones vs. History, Written Blood. Brian Pavlak edits the book, and Dr. Alisi writes a chapter in that book on Sansa. So she's going to help me cover this crucial chapter in Sansa's story. You can follow her on Twitter at Danielle underscore Alisi. Find out more about what she's interested in. Then Steve and I talk about home. What an amazing episode. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Danielle Alisi. Danielle, would you tell me a little bit about Elizabeth of York? Because the reason why I came across your name, mm-hmm. you wrote an essay in Brian Pavlak's edited volume, mm-hmm. Game of Thrones versus History, Written Blood. That's Wiley Blackwell, if you yes. would like to look at their website. And honestly, a great price for a Wiley Blackwell book. Because, <laughs> because <laughs> Wiley Blackwell is sort of known for overpricing their book, I, in my experience. Uh, that is mm-hmm. the case. But this book is very well priced. And you wrote an essay on Sansa, and I was hoping that you could maybe tell us about a couple, maybe a couple parallels between Sansa and Elizabeth. Yeah. So, you know, Sansa actually has a lot of parallels with a lot of medieval women. And I think that's what's so striking about her. And, and Elizabeth of York is just one, and one mm. that stands out a lot because of the overall parallels between game of thrones and the wars of the roses um the english civil war in in the late middle ages that um the game of thrones was potentially inspired by Mm -hmm. or has a lot of similar parallels oh absolutely Um, inspired by yeah and i'm sure you've you maybe mentioned that or talked about that before here on the podcast but so elizabeth of york is um and and yeah there's there's definitely some even similarities between the the names there york and stark lannister versus lancaster these are the families that are embroiled in this civil war um and elizabeth is one of the daughters the eldest daughter in fact of uh, king edward the fourth of england mm. um who's, who's one of the main kings kind of it, it wrapped up in this this dynastic war right. um her mother is elizabeth woodville uh who's notably a, a com- one of our few commoner queens right? she was raised to the position of queen consort w- uh, with edward um she's not like a foreign princess which was more common mm. for for the time sure. but then elizabeth of york so she's named after her mother there's lots of elizabeths lots of edwards in these stories mm-hmm. um she 
you know, she is an important princess. She's the princess of Wales. She's the, you know, the firstborn daughter. Later sons come along to become um, important there. Uh, she's got a lot of siblings, just like Sansa has. But the the real similarities between them, I, I think, are um, one that Elizabeth of York was also used as, as a dynastic political pawn. And the women in this time, especially women born in the aristocratic or the royal class, they're bodies were these conduits of power Mm. through marriage through childbearing they're able to pass along power inheritance uh titles names and so that's that's something that we see happen a lot with elizabeth of york's story um you know uh, beyond that she spent time as a political captive throughout the war being passed from kind of side to side depending on who is in power we see that happen a lot with sansa Mm -hmm. um we also see, you know, at the end of the Wars of the Roses, it's really the marriage to Elizabeth, bringing her name, bringing her claim after her brothers are, for all we know, killed. Um, it, it's the marriage uh, of her that really ends the war, brings peace because mm-hmm. of that that ability of her to bring her inheritance, her name, her power, and say, well, now this is the alliance, right? So her marriage is an alliance yeah. in, in in every sense of the word. And when we see that happen a lot with Sansa, right. In both the book and the, and the show. Yeah. Do you get the sense that Elizabeth knew that she was a political asset? Like, like is her, you know, people want something from her, right. They want something from her body or they want some sort of treaty based on marriage or something like that. And that was her, her value to these power brokers. Do you think that she knows that she has value in that way? Yes. Yes. Um, I think that Elizabeth and women like Elizabeth, girls like Elizabeth when they're children, are very, very um, uh, well-versed in their role in society and their importance in the family, Mm -hmm. Um, especially an, an eldest royal daughter like Elizabeth, um, it would have been foundational to her education. No matter, take the wars and the Civil War, you know, out of the conversation, she would have always known that she was going to marry for an alliance. Mm -hmm. She was betrothed at a very young age um, to to a series of of, of people in in the effort to um, create these alliances. Uh, That would have been something she was aware of. She would have known that that was her her future, um, similar to how Sansa does. And um, yeah, she would have known that. Yeah, good. I'm glad that you said that. Maybe this is like a little point of conversation here because I don't get the sense in these early Sansa chapters, and it could be Martin is sort of Mm-hmm. creating a, an anachronism here but I don't I don't get the sense with Sansa that she really knows why why she might be valuable to Cersei or why she might be valuable to Littlefinger it feels like she she feels like she loves Joffrey she was promised to Joffrey and that's the reason why she needs to be wed to Joffrey I don't really get the sense that Sansa has a strong awareness that she is a political asset Mm. and that they're treating her like a political asset. I feel like I I, I don't know if I don't know if Sansa quite I mean, she's savvy in a lot of ways, but I don't know if she's savvy in that way. You know, 
That's really interesting you say that. And, and I, and I know that it's a little bit different for me because I've spent a lot of time with Sansa. <laughs> I okay. spent a lot of time in sure. her chapters and, and, and thinking about her. And we're pretty early on in her story here still. Yeah. And, and I read it differently. Oh, good. I think that maybe she doesn't, she doesn't have the, she's a child uh, in these chapters mm-hmm. and she doesn't have the language to at her fingertips to to call it what it is Mm. but if you actually do a close reading and read between the lines of what she's saying the the sentiment is there for me um you know and 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 i'm looking at this chapter and not to get ahead of ourselves or anything but she she says these things she has this awareness that um she could have a role she could have power and when she she says this a lot in this chapter when she marries joffrey mm-hmm. she could convince him to do You're x right. y and z sure. she could stop them and it's right on it's right at the end of the chapter and she says you know if, if her mother or if rob they, if they act if they do something wrong they could ruin everything but she can do it she's got it right and and so i think she is seeing that she has significance uh-huh. and that she um is important and that she could maneuver things even if she doesn't at this point um have the language to call it what it is yeah that's a good point and she and she does say from time to time i think she tries to use her engagement to Joffrey sort of as leverage like she'll say look yeah get word to Joffrey right where's when we get older we're gonna marry exactly I wrote down the same line she's trying to use it but I almost feel like she thinks that one day she will have power I don't think that she Mm -hmm. knows that she is a political asset right now so I don't know I think that Cersei sees her and thinks I need to use this thing in front of me Mm-hmm. Because this thing in front of me is going to give me leverage over the northern armies. Yeah. And well, Sansa feels like, I don't think she knows that Cersei views her that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think that maybe Sansa would have, Sansa and Elizabeth, for example, would have similar understanding of what power meant at this time. Mm. You know, they would know that they were going to make an advantageous marriage for their family that that was that was they were going to maybe symbolize an alliance um they would have that awareness and i think she does at this point she would know that when she's training right it's different than aria's training but she's training nonetheless she's learning she says in here her letters and her sums she's learning needlepoint she's watching her mother do certain things run a household uh she would know that that's for a reason Mm -hmm. that she's going to have a role to play one day um does she or elizabeth necessarily know that there's going to be um wars or armies or the the need to mm-hmm. convince the king to pardon someone no maybe not um and i think what's so special about this chapter that we're discussing is that for me this represents a big turning point for sansa in her experience where she's she's shifting into this role of of more of a political actor whether she knows it or not that's right that's right. Yeah, this is, she, and I think she, this is kind of forced upon her. I don't think that this would be her natural inclination to think like, well, I, I, now I got to get something over on Littlefinger now in order to get what I yeah. want. She's just not there yet. No, but she's she's going to learn that, and that's part of her arc. Well, right? she's yeah, she's going to get forced into that really, really quickly yeah. here. Let me read my synopsis, and then we can talk a little bit more about this. Sounds great. Sansa is isolated and locked in a room. Her only company is Jane Poole, who can only cry. Sansa has heard the sounds of violence, but she has no idea what has taken place. 
Although she guesses that the king has died, her pleas to be in contact with Cersei or Joffrey are not heeded. Finally, after three days, she is escorted to a council of Cersei, Baelish, Varys, and Pycelle. When Sansa hears that her father has been accused of treason, she protests. But the adults threaten to sever her engagement with Joffrey unless she helps them. Cersei needs her to write a letter to her brothers, mother, aunt, and grandfather in order to keep the king's peace. After a futile attempt to ask for her father, Sansa feels helpless and agrees. Later that night, she realizes that she's forgotten to ask about Arya. So, uh, Danielle, would you like to talk about a character or a theme or a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? No, I, I feel like we should just climb the ladder, see where it takes Let's us. Let's climb the ladder. You take the first rung. What do you want to talk about? I think I, I, I just definitely want to talk about, uh, to start off with, this turning point for Sansa in this chapter. That I, I see this as her crossing of threshold oh, interesting. in to being a political captive now and and it, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there so I, i'd like to start there yeah good okay you. good all right so yeah so she's certainly a hostage and you're saying that this is sort of a, a major shift in her character development yeah i think a lot of people read that shift to happen when um especially in the in the show right when she sees her father dead like when, mm. when she turns against joffrey mm. but and and that is a that is an important um, part a movement for her. But I I think it, the real transition, the first transition in her story, actually happens in this chapter, where where she is. It, it's you. We really start to see her making choices. Hmm. And for me, when I write about Sansa, when I think about her, it's all about where is her agency? Where is she making choices here? Hmm. We may not like her choices. We may not have chosen them ourselves. But she's making choices. She's doing things even mm. if we don't always recognize that in her. Right. I mean, I guess in a major way, she chooses to ask after her father, ask after Jane Poole's father. This is not something that she knows she should do because of courtesy, right? Yeah. But she almost feels like, I, I know that I'm not supposed to say this right now, but I have, I have to ask. I have to ask mm -hmm. this question. And then, of course... She eventually chooses not to go down the path when she sees where that is leading, and she she makes a choice to be Cersei's mouthpiece, I suppose. Which I guess yeah. is a question of like, is that her, is that agency? Because it seems like that's there's almost like a choice to eschew agency in that case. Well, when she when she makes that choice. Um... I, she doesn't really frame it as that she's doing it for Cersei or that she's saying what Cersei wants her to say. She's not reading it that way. Mm. Uh, I, I think instead it's it's kind of back to what I was I was mentioning before. She's seeing this as the first step to her bigger plan, which is to later convince Joffrey All to right. pardon everybody. I see. Right. I see. No, that's so a good point. It's almost like she sees this council, the Queen and and company, offering her the first step in her larger plan here and it's starting to formulate and we're in her head as it's as it's coming up as she's as she's coming up with this larger plan and it, it's frankly it's a plan that would have been really common for 
medieval women in her position. We this the role of the mediator mm. and the intercessor was one that queen consorts would expect to play um, at one point or another. So it's 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 something that again I think it affirms that she she kind of knows her role and she knows what her eventual role in society could be and she's working towards that now. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I do, I see it as a choice. She's making that choice and it's part of her, her grand scheme. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't always think of Sansa as scheming, but I think this is her first scheme that we, well, one of her first schemes that right. we start to see. Right. Sure. And I think, hmm, I think that there's something about the fact that she has to decide in the moment. You know, there's yeah. something about, okay, now this is not what I wanted. What I wanted to do was talk with my father. Yeah. But they're not going to let me do that. And that is going to ruin this plan I have with Joffrey. So what's plan B here? Well, plan B is stay the course, become queen, and then plead for my brothers or my mother or my father, whatever I can do once I actually am sitting next to Joffrey. Yeah, and, and and it's also. I mean, we definitely should know she's being manipulated in this moment. I mean, it's it's we, we oh, can't yeah. kind of shy away from that. And there's this part where Pycelle says, you know, it will go hard for them, right? If yeah. they don't listen to her, right. they, she's also there's a there's a survival aspect too. She's kind of being pushed in a way. Um, it's like this is she thinks she's protecting her family. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. She wants to protect her family, um, and I think that well, I have a very I have a very complicated relationship with Sansa. <laughs> Many do. Many I, do. <laughs> I think I have been educated by a few different podcast guests about Sansa. I, I, I've been educated to read Sansa in a way differently than I used to read Sansa. Mm-hmm. And the way I used to read Sansa was that, are you know, are you good, Sansa bad? Mm-hmm. It was pretty simple. <laughs> you yeah. Are you loyal and she's brave? And are you, <laughs> you know, eschewing traditional gender roles? And are, you know, all of these great things mm-hmm. about Arya. And, and of course, Sansa is set against Arya in many ways. I mean, yeah. they're just so opposite. And even, even in this chapter, we learn that, Sansa's really good at reading, better than any of her siblings. Mm-hmm. But then in another chapter, as we learn that Arya's really good at sums, mm-hmm. and that and, and Sansa's hopeless at sums. So they're just really being set against one another throughout. And I think Martin tricked me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got tricked because I used to think that Sansa's sort of this. You know, she's pretty selfish, and she's yeah. she's trying. She really doesn't care about. Her sister, she doesn't really care about Jane Poole. In reality, she cares about uh, her her own social advancement. Mm-hmm. And I th- and I still believe that. I still believe that about her. And yet, I know that Sansa is working with the tools she has available to survive. Like everyone yeah. else in this story has has to work with the tools that they have available to survive. And yet, Danielle, I have to admit, I read this chapter and I think, do you really care about Jane Poole? I'm not sure. Do you really care about Arya? I'm pretty sure you don't because <laughs> you forgot, you completely forgot to ask about your sister until after you were done reading your fantasy stories. So, yeah, I don't, like I said, complicated relationship. Yeah. 
I have, oh, I have a few, I have a few things to say uh, please, about that because yes, yeah, please. I think that that that's always where we're gonna go when we're talking about Sansa, especially early Sansa, right? Early chapters of her mm-hmm. um, bring up a lot of this stuff, uh, these these uneasy feelings, and sometimes I feel like I I get put in these positions where I have to defend Sansa at the expense of Arya, and that's just playing the same game, sure, right? right? Just comparing two girls, two sisters yes. against each other. Don't be tricked um, by George. Don't, yeah. Don't be fooled. And it, but it does, your comments do beg the question of, do we ever look in Arya's chapters for her worrying about Sansa? That's a good question. Yeah, but, but Martin puts it on the page yeah. for us to deal with with Sansa, so we have to deal with that. Right. No, that's, that's a really good question. Does Arya ever care about... Sansa in her chat. I mean, certainly when Sansa is creating difficulty for her. <laughs> I mean, Sansa sometimes will put Arya in an impossible situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, or she'll be, you know, deriding her or something like that. Yeah. Normally what will happen with both sisters is that when they think about some some problem that would have been easier if their sister hadn't complicated it, mm-hmm. they're not thinking about one another. And they, yeah. they just don't have that kind of relationship. I think whether George did this purposely or accidentally because it's in our subconscious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, he, what he presents is something very real, which is two sisters that are, whether on the page or outside of the page, mm-hmm. pitted against each other. Um, and and they're they are aware of that in the text that they are the kind of the opposite to one another. Their expectations are different. Sansa is frustrated with Arya because she sees herself as doing what she's supposed to do, and so frustrated that her sister mm-hmm. can't do that. Mm-hmm. And it's all on Sansa to to do that, to be the good one, right? To do these things. Um, and and then Arya has her own baggage from that she's never going to be as as pretty or perfect as Sansa she's going to forge her own path right and so I think that's just a really relatable I would take take history out of that it's a really relatable place to be yeah these two sisters that are struggling figuring out their identities in opposition to their this this counterpart to them it's the two girls in the family right I think that there's another I think that there's something about like even though this this story is set in a world far far away, right? Uh, mm. Both in terms of the, the genre and in terms of sort of a an antiquated fantasy world. Yeah, there's something universal about the feeling of a sibling you don't get along with, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it's like there's some there's something sort of common to the human experience. When, because we can all kind of look back, and even if we don't have a sibling, we have some some other young person that made our life complicated. Mm-hmm. That you kind of, it was that that first that first little introduction to politics, right? It's like, yeah. all right, how do I? Okay, that I know they provoked me, and then I lashed out at them. So who's really at fault now? How do I spin this to mom? You know, how do do I make this, how do I make myself seem like the good guy to dad or something like that? It really is sort of this trial run for the Game of Thrones. So I like that. I like, I like that these two sisters have a complicated relationship. And I think that, I think I meant to like 
Arya more at this point. I think that that's maybe what I'm supposed to do, and I don't know if that's if that sort of is an appeal to my masculinity because mm. Arya presents in more in more masculine ways or something like that. But it's it certainly is how I approach this book when I first read it. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think that that's in the text. I think that's also in our we're kind of socially conditioned to see that mm-hmm. the the type of power and agency and feminism that we see in Arya is is celebrated. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's something that we're supposed to see as like a feminist icon. We want to be like her, play with the boys, be tough, right? And Arya is amazing for all those reasons. Right. But then I think we're also so conditioned to see Sansa's version of strength, of survival, of power, of agency as as bad, mm-hmm. um, as not as good, as um, not powerful. I mean, power is typically coded masculine anyway. Right. So Sansa's feminine power is just not read the same way. And, and she's – I think – I think this chapter, I wanted to say this before too, this chapter makes us uncomfortable about Sansa. Right. That's what it's doing. It's supposed, <laughs> yeah. like you're, you do feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, and I get that, right. I'm, I'm not going to spend our time going line by line, defending all of her actions. We're supposed, especially at the end when she forgets about her sister, we're, that's why it's in there. Yeah. We're supposed to be uncomfortable with, with, with Sansa. But I think bigger than that. Sansa as a character mm-hmm. always makes us a little bit uncomfortable because we don't know how to read her power, her survival skills. They don't they don't register as 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 impressive or important or admirable as Daenerys or Arya right. or Brienne, right? We see those as our as our, the the girls you want to look up to, and then and Sansa's the you know it's like the the not like other girls trope. Yeah. And Sansa's like other girls, but I think what we're starting to learn as a society and and um, iterate as a society is that it's okay to be like other girls too. Right. That's also legitimate. And I think that that is sort of a modern. Uh, how do I say this? It's sort of modern eyes rethinking through. A, a much earlier sentiment because I think that in the real life world, you know, be- <laughs> before before the modern period, you would look at a woman that presents as Arya presents and think, "Well, this is this is no good. You know, this is not attractive. This is not anything to be encouraged." Right. Mm. But then because we have these modern eyes, it's like, no, 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 this person's brave. Look how brave she is to cast off these feminine uh, shackles, you know, something like Mm -hmm. that. And I think that that's probably what I'm guilty of doing. I think that I'm probably guilty of rooting for Arya because of that. And I was even contrasting, I even felt like I was contrasting Arya and Sansa in this chapter because. This chapter comes right after an Arya chapter. And in the Arya chapter before, she's being taught to see, right? Now, what do you actually yeah. see? You know, Siri Farrell is saying, no, my eyes told you where the sword was going to be. You need to learn to see in a way that will help you survive. And then in this chapter, what's Sansa doing? She can't see anything. She's locked in a room. She can only hear the battle. And then when she gets out on the courtyard, she won't look at the corpse. She looks away because it might be someone that she might know and she just can't look at it. So I'm I'm even trying to contrast like the lesson Arya just learned and the this very same lesson that 
Sansa refuses to learn. But I think that it's unfair. I think that Sansa just sees yeah. things that Arya wouldn't. Like, they see the world in a different way. And and we, you know, written on top of Sansa's story in both the book and the show, but in very different ways after this chapter, right? This is my turning point chapter, mm-hmm. is is she's she is a a survivor, right? A victim. We like to call, we prefer to call them survivors, whether it's a assault and she's physically assaulted in the books, what happens to her later in the show. Um you know, these, and, and even just being a political captive, the the taunting she experiences from Joffrey, this is abuse. She's in a, she is a survivor oh, of abuse. Yeah. And, and so we have to be really careful, especially moving forward in her story of how we judge how survivors survive hmm. and yeah. how they deal with what's happening around yeah, and them. And child, I think that that's, right? yeah, she's a child. Yeah. And, you know, she, whilst Arya is learning her, her tools for survival and they're, they're very, um, they're very recognizable, right? Mm-hmm. She picks up a sword, learning how to fight, running, right? Protecting herself, doing these these really obvious moments. Sansa's are there. They're just so much more subtle and so much yeah. uh, less flashy, right? When she makes this choice in this chapter, um, when Bor- uh, Sir Boris comes to get her, right? Uh, and, and she says that she's going to be... Uh, She's she's going to stay graceful, right? She says a lady remembered her remembers her courtesies, right. and she was resolved to be a lady no matter what. And this starts a moment for her right. that hindsight shows us because we know her later chapters um, that she no matter what happens is going to maintain her courtesy. Well, that's her be, armor, right? Yeah, that is exactly that is exactly that is how she's going to survive. I want to read this yeah. little passage because I think it does kind of show that Sansa's eyes are open. She just see she's just looking for different things and. Seen things yeah. that Arya wouldn't see. So here's what happened. She's in the room with the council, and it says, Sansa seated herself beside the queen. Cersei smiled again, but that did not make her feel any less anxious. Yeah. Varys was wringing his soft hands together. Grand Maester Pycelle kept his sleepy eyes on the paper in front of him, but she could see little fingers staring. Something about the way the small man looked at her made Sansa feel as though she had no clothes on. Goosebumps yeah. pimpled her skin. And so Sansa can notice that Cersei's wearing clothes as if she's in mourning, right? She notices mm-hmm. that the clothes, the clothing means something. She notices how Pycelle is holding his head and his eyes. She, she notices that Varys smells flowery and he's wringing his hands. And she notices that Littlefinger is looking at her in a way that is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So these are all things, these are all ways that she has been trained to see the world. She's starting to read politics, in other words. Yes, Be- behind exactly. the words, she can read that Cersei's smile is not a smile that should make her feel any less anxious. Right? So she's yeah. she's absolutely learning to read people politically. It's just, you're right, it's absolutely more subtle than we than we would find in the Arya chapters. Um, part of this threshold that she's crossing, this turning point she's experiencing into political captive, as you noted, also a political actor too. Mm-hmm. Start, she's starting to use those skills. Is is just uh, reiterating that that armor that she starts to put on, the courtesy, um, the using her potential marriage to Joffrey as protection. She does that early mm-hmm. on, and and kind of realizing subconsciously. Even even she says you know she wants to wed the king, but that that would be protection. Mm-hmm. That she would be then queen, right? 
Um, and it's, and just reiterating the importance of, of her using her type of weaponry, hiding behind this courtesy, even though, you know, her first thought is that this, this knight is ugly. Which is, you look so, you look so handsome, right? <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, she's acting politically in those moments too. Hmm. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's not Arya's sword, but it's still, it's still her version of power, right. her type of courage. Sure. And that, again, it was, would have been something that is much more um, familiar to most women in history. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that maybe that parlays into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is an important Jane Poole chapter, even though she's sort mm. of, she's sort of this marginal character um and she's you know she's not represented in the show uh you know i guess she is represented in the show just in a different way basically sansa gets yeah some of her storyline right yeah but i do want to talk about jane pool because is jane pool the only one acting appropriately in this chapter (laughs) i mean she comes in and She's bruised and crying. Bruised? Bruised means she's been assaulted, right? Yeah, yeah. So she's been assaulted. She's weeping as if, you know, she's never going to see her father again. Although Sansa, from Sansa's point of view, this is not anything to cry about. Sansa, oh, she's such a child. But I'm thinking, is that is that the case? I think that maybe Jane Poole's the only one that knows what's really happening around these parts. Yeah. And acting appropriate based on what she has seen in the courtyard. So I guess that that's my question. I think that maybe is Jane Poole the only one acting appropriately? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it brings up these larger these larger larger points I want to get to or talk about with her. I love that Jane's in this chapter, even though it's really ominous knowing what's going to happen to her. Yeah. Um, right. And that moment where she shifted into Littlefinger's custody Ugh. is chilling, right? It's horror. It's, I wrote down horror next to what he yeah. says. He says, I will find a place for her. And I just, I could like, exclamation point, nothing good is going to happen to her now. Yeah. And, and, but all of that, Everything you said, from the bruises, all the crying, to what she she truly does know in her heart mm-hmm. about her father, mm-hmm. and then to what we happens off page to her, but we know happens when she's passed into Littlefinger's care. It's illustrating um, this this really important class distinction between her and Sansa. Okay, that they are friends. They sleep in the bed like sisters. Mm-hmm. There is this love and companionship between them. But Jane's body is not worth what Sansa's body is worth. Yeah, you're right. And that is that's right there on the page. So having her in this chapter reminds us this something again that makes us really uncomfortable, right? Something that we have to look mm-hmm. at. That mm-hmm. the as much as we want to talk about you know, the, the passage of, of power through Sansa's body, her claim, her title, what marrying her could do. And yes, she does experience assault and and things that we can talk about later, but for, for Jane, I mean, it's, she's never protected from that Um, from even from the very, very beginning. It's her body's not worth what Sansa's body's worth to these people and, and juxtaposing them next to each other really, really forces us to look at that Mm -hmm. and recognize that we could talk about Sansa and her power, but we also have to remember that some of that agency comes from her social class. Right. Right. And I think Cersei makes this big point of saying, 
Like, I don't want these two together. Like, she's upset that they've been roomed together. Yes. Because her, her mask slides yes, in that moment. That's right. And the way I'm reading that is that I think that Cersei feels like she doesn't want any information getting to Sansa that would sort of taint an otherwise, you know, pristine manipulation on Cersei's part, mm. right? Yeah. If she can yeah. control the information getting to Sansa, then she can create Sansa's reality for her. Yes, and and abusers are most effective when they isolate their victims. Sure. Yeah. So right. by giving her a companion, someone who can give her knowledge, which we know Cersei uh-huh. views as powerful, but also a companionship. She wants to be Sansa's only lifeline for kindness. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. The other thing about Jane, of course, we know that Jane is going to be used as political capital under the mask of Arya Stark, right? Mm-hmm. And she's going to be married to a, a horrible, monstrous man. Yeah. For some reason, it's I think Baelish thinks that he get he's going to advance his own agenda by creating some kind of alliance up north, right? Yeah. So Jane's body is used very much like someone in Sansa's sort of social rank, right? Mm-hmm. But she has to put on a mask in order to do it. So it's kind of forced mm-hmm. upon her. Whereas Sansa is sort of learning to put on the mask of her own volition. Mm-hmm. Right? Jane Jane doesn't really have any agency. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so she's forced in this horrible situation. But, of course, we don't know that. We absolutely yeah. don't know that this is what's going to happen until much, much later in the story. It, it even it reminds me to make these historical connections again um so in elizabeth of york's story there is there is a a little bit of um uh you know mistaken identity right imposters going on her her brothers die as far as we know our young brothers and that's Mm. why the claim becomes hers and then later on when she's queen queen consort to henry tudor uh, henry the seventh um uh pretenders start to appear i'm the brother i'm her brother Mm. you know i'm the prince in the tower i got away and and it reminds me of this moment where where jane is 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 passed as aria this is a world where people wouldn't know what people looked like um jane jane kind of presents as sort of a highborn northern looking yeah. kind of girl why not why why not pass yeah. her off as Arya? and so there's there's this kind of historical point to that too of of the uncertainty of people and you just you hear about these people these these noble class but no one really knows mm-hmm. what they look like and um could you pass someone and that that's in the has also created a lot of uh, questioning okay mm-hmm. is, is, is we're we're putting all of our stake in this marriage is even the real person and we kind of see that playing out uh, on jane here um and i think it's juxtaposed in the show when with sansa you know she's able to pass as someone else just by dyeing her hair uh but it's her hair that's iconic so when she comes out as a redhead it's she's able to to kind of stake her claim as sansa stark um so there's just some other interesting things going on floating around that as well that that should make us think about how these these women are used for their titles they are forced into these positions their their bodies become really representative of who they are or who they're not so i guess the next thing I think it's a kind of important point to make because it's brought up very specifically in this chapter, and that is that this chapter has a lot of bearing for Ned's story. Yeah. And so I feel like we really need, 
we really need to call out the fact that what Cersei says to Sansa, she says, I know that you must love Joffrey. Otherwise, why would you have alerted me, mm-hmm. snuck out of your room and come to me and alerted me that your father was planning to take you back north? And this is a little, so we see a little window into what happened before this fateful throne room scene with Ned, where he, he gets, he gets arrested. Well, what happened was Ned was betrayed unwittingly or not. He was betrayed by Sansa. Sansa went to Cersei. It's the reveal. Yeah, this this is a it's like an off-page reveal of what yes, happened. Yes, absolutely. And I was thinking over and over, you know, we always accuse Ned like, well, what was his downfall? He was just a stupid man of honor. And I was thinking, is it that or is it that he has this weak spot for children? He mm-hmm. always has a weak spot for children. He does not want, you know, Danny to be executed. He doesn't want the Targaryen children to be executed. He doesn't want to drag Joffrey out of his bed at night. And he's absolutely going to try to comfort his daughters and try to explain to them why they need to go back to Winterfell. So in trusting his daughters with a little bit more information that maybe that they need to know, he gives Sansa a chance to exercise her own agency. Mm. It's because yeah. he loves his daughters. Of course he's going to try to tell Sansa that she, that she's going to get to marry someone else up north. Because he thinks that that's what's going to comfort her. It's absolutely the wrong thing to say to Sansa. Yeah. But that is, I think this this chapter does reveal again that Ned's true weakness is just that he wants to try to comfort children wherever he can. He mm. doesn't view them as political creatures in the same way that Renly or Cersei or Littlefinger right. does, right? Yeah, and I think that I love that analysis. I think we can add an extra layer on top of it here um, and, and say that he loves his daughter Sansa and he wants to comfort her, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and trust her, but he doesn't really understand her. Hmm. He doesn't really know. No. If he understood <laughs> Sansa, if he had been listening yeah. to anything she'd been saying this whole time, uh-huh. he would have known that it's not about getting married. She wants to be in King's Landing. She didn't want to be in the North anymore. That's right. She wanted this life. And and I think that it also betrays that he doesn't really always see his children clearly. Uh-huh. That's, See what they're going that's through. That's totally you know? true. That, and that does remind me of something that Sansa sees. That's really important. She sees that her beloved Joffrey is nothing like his father, right? Mm-hmm. And that's Good. when that's sort of when Ned realizes, of course, he's nothing like Robert. You know, that, yeah, that's his realization. That it was through Sansa's eyes that that he mm-hmm. kind of came to that realization. You know, in the, that moment when she, we got that reveal, right? You read Cersei's uh, quote, but we also have um, Sansa's point of view on that where she says you know she's a good girl Mm -hmm. obedient girl she felt as wicked as Arya. so we see her making that force comparison again um she's sneaking away defying her lord father Uh um and then she says she had never done anything so willful before and she would never have done it then if she hadn't loved joffrey as much as she did and there's just there's a lot in that too because she's making this choice here as you said she's exercises this agency she's given this opportunity mm-hmm. to um this is like this is the first thing she does that's willful yeah and and we learn so much about what she wants and what she's motivated by she's never done anything so willful right she's as wicked of Arya. yeah she thinks that the only way for her life not to be completely ruined 
is if the king would compel her father to keep her in King's Landing. Yeah. Uh, that's and, and absolutely that's her exercising her agency. You know, yeah. she's going above her father's head. And I think we get, you know, she gets really caught up on this point. So as readers, we get caught up on the point of her love for Joffrey. Mm. Um, but I think that we can read past that and see because she's, you know, a, a middle school age girl calling it love. But it, we know it's not love. Right. We know that no. um, it's it, but it's really it's I read it as her vision for her own life. And well, what Joffrey yes. means to her, you know, the marriage to him is to leave her home, live in King's mm-hmm. Landing, be like the queen, be powerful. Her dream is about her being queen and having people bow to her. Right. And and again, I always say this. We may not agree with her. We may not like what she wants, but she's a girl saying this is what I want and I'm going to go for it. Yeah. And when we see that in other characters, we respect it so much more than we seem to with Sansa. Well, I, that's true. And. I think, I mean, you you, meant, you said it, and I'm I'm glad you said it. I think that she's in love with King's Landing. She's, she wants to go to the city. I think she's fallen in love. She's fallen in love with the colors and the, the tournament and all of the clothing. She gets to see what the queen wears every day. Like, she's just fallen in love with Southern, you know, the Southern world, or King's Landing in particular. And, of course, Joffrey is her way into that world. Yeah. So, I, yes, of course, she probably thinks that she loves Joffrey. And yet we know, like, well, you you might love Joffrey. You might be in love with what Joffrey will allow you to do with your life. And, and, it, yeah. and that means staying in King's Landing. Especially for a girl in her position uh, who knows that marriage is inevitable mm. and a powerful marriage mm. for her is inevitable. Absolutely. Um, it, it, you know, we mostly read stories about women and girls who don't want that. And that's, that's the plot. Right. Sure. But it, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that many would want that, right? that that's okay to want too. And it's just something she wants. And, and we're uncomfortable with how she acts about that, yeah. how she acts on that want and what she, what ends up happening out of, you know, far past what she could see and predict happening. Um, but but that's that's really what's going on here is that she is uh, she's making choices for her own life yeah. as best as she can see with her capabilities at this point in the story. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, just to call out a couple notable introductions uh, for the first time, we are introduced to Sir Mandon Moore and more importantly, Sansa's letter. Notable departures. I suppose you could say that Jane Poole departs, although it is off page. And presumably her father has departed as well. And then show differences, of course. Anything that includes Jane Poole is going to be a show difference. Um, I will say this. There is one a little... I was just re-watching the the scene in the show. um, And I did want to point out one thing thing about the difference in what line Varys has given in the show I guess the writers have Varys saying your father is a traitor and I think that Varys knows that Ned is not a traitor so Varys in this way lies but I think that in the book and I'll read this little passage I think that Martin is more careful on as to what words he puts on Varys's lips here's what Varys says in the book he says poor child murmured Varys 
a love so true and innocent. Your grace, it would be cruel to deny it. And yet, what can we do? Her father stands condemned. His soft hands washed each other in a gesture of helpless distress. So here's Varys saying something that's absolutely true. Her father is accused. You know, he does stand condemned. It is cruel what they're doing to her. But Varys, it seems to me, especially in this book, is usually careful to say things that are true in a way that will deceive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about that scene where, you know, he's at trial and he's supposed to, like, you know, give testimony against Tyrion. And everything he says under oath is true, but he leaves out certain details that make Tyrion seem guilty. But on the face of it, it's hard to deny the truthfulness of what he actually says. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I noted that difference and I just, it it made me appreciate the way that George writes Varys just a little bit more. Much more careful, as you said. Very careful to omit certain key details, but also not be caught in the lie. it's, It's kind of a brilliant little trick. In two days, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben. Taylor Swift: The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming March 14th, only on Disney+. Plus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now Steve and I cover the second episode of season six, simply titled Home. In this episode, Bran sees a vision of young Ned. We say goodbye to Balon Greyjoy, who is assassinated. Arya goes head to head with the waif. But the big news of this episode is that zombie Jon Snow awakes. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Well, Steve, it looks like Heather was right. She was. She was not in denial. She was. Uh, she. She called it. I'm bringing that actor back to lay on a slab for two episodes. <laughs> and. And he got his haircut. Yeah, I mean, clearly the resurrection part of it is the big deal, right? That's that's the lead. You don't want to bury that, right? Mm. But it's not like Jon Snow's hair has been insignificant. He's had he's had a beautiful head of hair. For, he's 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 had a luscious mane up there. I mean, it's been so luscious that he would never even wear a hat when it was he no. was about to freeze to death. It bothered you all that time. It bothered me the whole time. In fact, I was super bothered about Theon and Sansa not having hats on. <laughs> I mean, I know that they had to leave in a hurry. Grab a hat on the way out. Grab a hat. Grab a hood. Grab something. Fashion a hat out of something. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, he gets his hair cut. I think that's a good way to get your hair cut. Yeah. Because I don't really appreciate haircuts. I don't I don't want to be there for haircuts. You, so you, 
cut your hair when you're dead. Cut my hair when I'm dead and then resurrect me. <laughs> That's like the idea of Davos, you know, just like take a little off the top. Not too much, not too much, no. Keeps it healthy. Grow stronger. All right. So when did Heather finally convince you? Because certainly you probably got wise before he actually came back to life. So when Davos wants Melisandre, I'm like, well, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna bring it back. They're gonna bring it back. Because you already had yeah. Heather in your ear saying, "Yeah, mm-hmm. they're gonna bring him back." Yeah, and so <laughs> it wasn't. Even, it didn't even come to me. It wouldn't have come to me as an option, right? Until, but yeah. So then, as soon as there's that, it's like, okay, which is a fascinating collaboration, right? To have Davos and and her working together somewhat, right? Or at least well, and the and relying I, on her magic. That's right. The guy that always hated her evil magic, right, is now imploring right. her for magic. He's seen it, right? So yeah. he's seen it. He's seen magic happen. He knows. So we know that he 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 may he may not believe in what it stands for, but he believes that it exists. So is that why that he wanted to hold himself up in the room with John? Because that's a lot to put. That's a lot of faith to put on something you've never seen happen. Right now, because we don't have any. I'm trying to think. Does he know about any of? these resurrections i mean how are you know it could be that he's heard rumors but even so like he did meet gendry for instance right right uh they never talk about it but here's the thing even if you've heard rumors i don't know why you corner yourself into that room with john's body unless you're pretty sure that the body's valuable well and for a for a battle that's not yours exactly right i mean that's the whole thing about it like going back to what you were kind of musing uh, about well, the last time was well what's your what's your play here you, you, you don't know th- i mean you know john a little but what are you gonna do about it like, you know and if you don't if this isn't the plan or you know then you know then what was it and if this was the plan also why <laughs> yeah i mean i guess bringing him back if, you, if you're you have to be pretty confident that you can bring this guy back to life otherwise you're gonna die at the wall guarding the corpse yeah his the play that he should have made was oh shoot john's dead i'm out of here like (laughs) yeah this is gonna get really uh, weird real quick and these are not my people i'm gone yeah but instead he pushes himself into a corner and pulls out a sword and sort of allies himself with a dead body Right. So to me, it seems like the only reason for him to do it is so the storyteller can concoct a scenario whereby he can implore Mel to bring him back to life. Which we aren't 100% sure he knows is an option. Right, exactly. So that's the thing, right? Like if, if it is, if there's been chatter about it, then he just knows about it anecdotally, or he's heard about it. And so if if there had been even just a moment mm-hmm. where they had had like him and her had had a conversation and like in the episode prior, it just would have hinted to it or something, you know I mean? And I guess the thing is you want to, if you want this particular sequence at the end here to be impactful, you, you can't hint towards it. Sure. So, I will sure. say that with all of those problems named, I was still thrilled by the ending. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I was still all in. I was like, "Oh, this is yeah, yeah." I, I'm good. I'm I'm overlooking all of the plot holes here. This is great, right? And what's really interesting too of all the characters to resurrect that we've lost that have been dramatic. It is interesting that it's John. 
Yeah, tell me more about that. Why is that interesting? Well, I mean, and I guess you can't, I mean, it, I guess there's access, right? The way that the narrative has, has moved it along is that he has Melisandre and the body are mm-hmm. in the same area. So that makes it convenient. But I mean, you know, you're writing the story or you're making these stories. Um, there's a lot of other big characters that could have been resurrected and that could have been right. a, a, a bigger deal, right? Sure. Um, yeah, you bring Ned back, that'd bad. be a big, big deal, right? Right. Or even even Joffrey back, you know, I mean, just in terms of like impact and if resurrection's out there as an option, how come we didn't, you know, it does seem interesting that we haven't seen it really to a main character. And then now we do. Yeah. John. To me, my immediate thought way back in the day when I realized they were going to bring John back was, well, maybe now he's released from his vow, right? Because he was, Mm -hmm. he was committed to living his entire life at the night's watch. And now that he maybe he can take up Stannis's offer. But in the book, when I was reading that, Stannis is still alive. Mm. So in the book, Stannis is still alive. So I I thought at that point, okay, so now he he can say, All right, I fulfilled my vow. I died a, a loyal member of the Night's Watch. Uh now I got the second chance. I'm gonna go gonna go down, find Stannis, and become John Stark. Right. Uh but the show. I don't think that's going to happen. Killed. Well, yeah, I killed Stannis. So that's so, yeah. So then I'm like, so, I mean, obviously it's, it's a great bit of a, of a cliffhanger ending. Cause you're like, well, well, now what? Right. I mean, what is, is cause from what, you know, unlike, you know, the story you were telling about from the book where uh, Catelyn is resurrected, but she becomes sort of this vengeful, you know, single-minded kind of person. So, so, her personality changes a bit. Mm-hmm. So there's a part of me that's like, well, will we see that with John, you know, and what might that look like? The, uh, the questions about like, well, all right, how, you know, they just kill him again if uh, Thorn doesn't, but I guess they have Thorn captured. And, but so like, how does this, how does, how does this change everything at the wall? Because every, all the treason, the people that have committed treason, they're basically, they're locked up from what, what I understand. Like, yeah, I mean, well, it didn't. It was kind of helpful that they they named themselves. <laughs> yeah, you know? that was helpful. In the first the first episode, it was a little Scooby Doo, and you know who who did it? I did, right, and yeah. these other four guys did it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bran. We have Bran back. Bran's back. He's he is he's uh, he's a he's a big boy now. Yeah, he's he's been in there for a minute, and um, I don't know if the three-eyed raven, like Melisandre, who has like a necklace that's enchanted and can be young, but the three-eyed raven has some ability to turn into Max von Sydow. That's pretty cool. He does. He can turn into Max von Sydow, so that's cool. And I didn't give this credit before, but these children of the forest, they're doing good with the haircutting. This this is a good is a great haircutting yeah. episode. <laughs> Because if you looked at the Three-Eyed Raven's hair season four. That's right. We'll, he had the we'll full-on old man poltergeist thing happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but these children of the forest, they cut his hair. looks really great. They cut Bran's hair. looks really great. Yeah. And I like, I like how they, was like, they were both getting their hair cut at the same time, apparently. And grew, grew a little bit of hair back on top for uh, Max. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's good for Max. I mean, Max, uh, you know, I guess that was the look, right? When they, when the children of the forest, like, how do you want me to do your hair? They said, just give me the bond inside out. And man, they sure, they nailed it. So in the book, this guy, he's called the Three-Eyed Crow in the book. And he's like, his body has decayed to the point where the tree is kind of keeping him alive. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's got like roots growing through his eyeballs and one of his eyes is red and uh, he just looks like a, like a corpse, but he's, he's sort of merged with the tree in such a way that he's sort of half man, half tree. Okay. This is, you know, I, th- I think this is sort of Martin's rated R take on the ends. Half, Mm-mm. half man, half tree creatures. Got it. All right, and then we see, of course, Lyanna Stark again in Bran's vision. So again, they're bringing her back into the narrative. And we meet Hodor as a young man whose name is Willis. (laughs) Okay. And whoever that actor was that played young Hodor, he, he just knocked it out of the park. Like, he had all of his mannerism down. It would just, oh, yeah. it was exactly Hodor. You know, props to that guy. He was awesome. They're begging for a, a, a Willis spinoff. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, Steve. <laughs> this guy who's bragging about exposing himself to Cersei. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I honestly, until this point, and it took six seasons for me to get to this point, I thought, oh, you're like, you're like a character out of Life of Brian. Like, this guy was giving off a huge Monty Python to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it was. It was little body storytelling. And, and it was, he, you know, it was, it was, like, was kind of nice to see uh, a little bit of personality in, the, uh, in other parts of King's Landing. See, I'm always complaining that there aren't more commoners in this story. And then I see that guy and I'm thinking, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> We're all right. <laughs> this is just going to turn into a Life of Brian. <laughs> If it's just all this guy. <laughs> yeah, they're all that guy. We had two two people smashed against walls in this episode. Oh, yeah. That's a good so, the wall smash count. Yeah. So so the giant, one one, he gets uh, shot in the back with an arrow and he takes the archer and just yeah. gives him a nice smash. A uh, little Hulk smash thing happens. Right. And then Life of Brian guy, he's he's super drunk, and uh, the yeah. the mountain just kind of uh, mountainstein or whatever. <laughs> now the mountain's preferred way of killing people is to smash their skulls. It seems. Yeah, he's good at it. <laughs> I just I'm telling you, man, I'm I'm kind of a kind of a sucker for this. Uh, this Frankenstein mountain thing. Oh, you like it. You like this guy. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. Because so far he hasn't he hasn't said a whole lot. Nope, that's what I like. I like I like that he's just there, man. He's just <laughs> this new ominous toy. <laughs> I mean it's 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 a little out there for me, and I, I kinda I kinda dig it. So Steve Steve likes the new mountain. That's I good. do like the new mountain. Tyrion has a little a little dragon moment. Like again, just give me a, give me Tyrion looking at dragons is a pretty good uh, montage that I, I'd watch. Why didn't he bring in Masandi with him? Like um, he asks her, like Masandi, have you ever been around these dragons? Yes. Have they ever hurt you? 
no. And then he like waxes on about how dragons know friends from enemies and they don't hurt their friends. Right. And then, I mean, to me, bring the Sandy down there, bring Grey Worm down there with you. Like, well, I, I think maybe the thought there is like, it doesn't matter, right? If, if their dragons are going to view him as an enemy, then they'll attack him. And it doesn't matter if he's got a, one of their friends with them. All right. Uh, I think I, I took that as, as a, uh, look, the dragons are going to know regardless. And if I'm going to find out if I want them to believe I'm a friend. So I'm maybe by doing that, maybe by going on his own, um, he's trying to appeal to their, or maybe he's the only one that thinks this is a good idea. Maybe, maybe Miss Sandy's yeah, like, yeah, I'm out. Yeah, and good it luck. could be too. It's like, like this is what I believe. That doesn't necessarily mean that it always holds true. Like, if I bring you down, and like, like if they don't like me, they might not like that you are with me. So, all right. So, unlike everyone else in the world, Steve, you were aware of the meme. I drink and know things before you actually heard the line in the show. Right. So did you, was it sort of like, uh, oh, all right, that's where it comes from. Or was, did it kind of take you out of it? Uh, no, it was one of those where it was like, ah, there it is. Yeah, you know, sure. um, and it was like, uh, where's and, Waldo? Right. And then, and it was fun. Cause like, I don't think Heather's aware of the, the meme. So, so she got a real big kick out of it. So it was nice to see it, it, it work like that, you know? Yeah, so Tyrion, so Tyrion's sort of all in on this idea that dragons are really intelligent. And some people say that they're even more intelligent than men. And I think that for him, that means they understand language. Mm. Because he goes in there and like talks to them like he's going to sort of win them over with his little speech. Right. Uh, so I think that that's what he's trying to do. I think that may be part of it, and even, or even the idea that I'm going to communicate this out loud, and it, and what I'm, and while I'm, because this is what I'm thinking, and that is going, and my body language, right. my energy, or whatever, is going to be reflective of the speech so even if they don't understand the language sure. they'll understand my intent because i'm i'm walking myself so, yeah so he's talking himself into a friendly disposition so that mm-hmm. he can convey that to the the beast yeah that's kind of what i got out of all right okay uh i i will say this um i love that i thought it was a great scene these collars that the dragons are wearing easy to come off huh? yeah there's like a one little pin. It's a big pin, but it's a pin that holds the collar on that doesn't have a back on the other side of the pin. <laughs> how is it possible that they haven't fallen off yet? Or that they haven't figured out how if they're all smart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they if they're that out. smart, like what the heck? Like, hey, I don't want this on anymore. Maybe we should just take it off. Oh, I don't even think about that. Like that pin needs a, a little wing nut on the on the other side. <laughs> looks like ramsey has designs on taking castle black right he wants to rush the wall and he, well, does he think this is to get 
Sansa still, or is he other? Uh, his point is to say that as long as Jon Snow is alive, who who at that point he he thinks Jon Snow is alive, that he'll they'll never the North will never really accept the Boltons as mm. the Wardens of the North. Okay. And so even though Jon Snow is a bastard, it'd be better to rush Castle Black and kill him. And then, of course, Roose Bolton says, if you act like a mad dog, then you'll be taken out back and slaughtered like a mad dog. And then that's the end of Roose Bolton. Yeah, that was a big... See, again, this these episodes, these first two episodes do not feel like your first two episodes, right? I mean, I guess this the closest thing you could probably do is the episode two where Joffrey dies. Yeah, that seemed like a big that's that seemed like a bigger bigger to do than Ruse Bolton's death. Sure. Um, but just the uh it's not just the death of Ruse Bolton, it's the uh it's it's the sort of the elevation of, of the self elevation of Ramsey. Right, because Lady uh, Walda and we should probably talk about the dismemberment count because probably, probably lots Lady of Walda and Child mm-hmm. get torn apart before they get yeah yeah and so you've got so that's so that's just it now is you've got ramsey who's like hey look you've given me the name and you you've made me the kind of the heir now you've been threatening me with this baby for a while but uh you know what they're all gone the threats are gone the things you're threatening me with are gone uh i've got the last name i'm a bolton Mm. uh i'm running this show and so that's an interesting moment, right? Because there was, if there was ever any feeling that maybe Ramsey was was held in check, it was, it was through his father, and now he's completely un, unleashed, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. so. There's no so now, but th- there's also the element that, from my perspective, is that he's such a sower of of chaos that while I see him as a threat. It's a very uh, I, I see it as a, a not a long term type threat. I just don't see him being able to to surround himself with strategists and to be, have the right uh, mentality to to do anything too major is what I what I sense out of. Well, you know what I was thinking, Steve. I was thinking, if ever Roos Bolton was a vampire, now's the time to prove it. <laughs> That's what we would know, right? I mean, if he just sprayed him with a squirt gun of holy water and that's how he killed him. There were a lot of fans that were disappointed here. They were thinking, ah, I was just positive Bruce Bolton was a vampire. And just as a bone, just as a little bone to throw, he he may still be a vampire in the books. We, we, we're, not, we're not certain that he's not a vampire. Yeah, so Roos is dead. Ramsey is now Lord of Winterfell. I think part of the just the le- the feelings of the ledgers of of justice, as far as the storytelling goes, I think it's really important that Winterfell doesn't end up as sort of a Bolton stronghold. I think that right. at least the sense of it is in the same way that like you know Heather's feeling that Jon Snow is probably coming back. I think a lot of people are thinking like, yeah, Winterfell's Winterfell's too important to just forever and always be a Bolton castle. Of all of all of them, that's the right. Boltons. 
that's right so yeah that's that's true and there is a but there's also this other sense that i have like well i mean they like to like to kill people off that you that you get somewhat attached to or whatever and like then they did it with john i'm like am i gonna have to watch john die twice <laughs> you know in a, in a, well like in a, beric Dondarrion, uh what was it six or seven times right there. well that's the thing is like is this is it I don't know. I don't. I don't know how often you're going to be able to. Yeah, it's do a pretty it. neat. It's a pretty neat uh, trick in the same way that Danny can kind of survive fire, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Well, so there. So that's what you're like. Okay, John feel like feels like he matters, and so the other part of it is like, does this do something to the tension of like any time now that John is mm-hmm. in trouble? I'm going to be like, well, you didn't bring him back to life to die now, did you? <laughs> you know, but I don't know. Well, it's one of those things. John can get stabbed now. Uh, Danny can get burned, and Theon can get kicked in the groin. They've <laughs> all acquired these superpowers. <laughs> Good for Theon. <laughs> Theon leaves. He bounces. He bounces, but it seems as if he's earned some kind of forgiveness from Sansa. And I yeah. and I wonder if that's important for his character because I think that he was just convinced. I think a lot a large part of what made him reek in the first place was just it's feeling cool. like he like he's irredeemable. Right. And if Sansa can see it in her heart to forgive him, then maybe there's hope for Theon. Anyway, that's how I read it. Yeah, that that would make sense. And so he says he's going home, right? So he's going home, and then of course, uh, War of Five Kings. Just do a final wrap up here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that Balon Greyjoy was just like. Like, oh, I wonder what's going to, oh, oh, he's just, okay, just right over, right over there. (laughs) I I would love to be, I'd like to find out about the actor learned, like, oh, they're bringing me back, bringing me back to season (laughs) six for one episode. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For this week's bird's eye view, I will share a tiny bit of gossip. No spoilers, I promise. I was recently interviewing David Peterson. You'll remember David is the grammarian who invented Dothraki and High Valerian. He's also one of the very few people in the world who has had eyes on the new House of the Dragon scripts. Why? Well, because, of course, he's the expert of High Valyrian as the inventor of High Valyrian. And because it's about Targaryens, there's a lot of translation to be done. So David's going to come on the next time I cover Tyrion to help me do a deep dive into his relationship with Tywin. But he told me something about House of the Dragon that I thought I would share with you. Of course, this is just one man's opinion, so go ahead and take it with a grain of salt. But David says that the scripts that he's read are some of the very best dialogue he's ever seen on a page. 
That interview will be in a month or so. I share it with you now only to give you a tiny ray of hope as we anticipate the new Game of Thrones prequel series. And that is all for this week.